1: Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. Recent years have witnessed a spate of journalistic and popular writings on the looming threat to civilization that lurks in traditional Islamic seminaries or madrasas that litter the physical and intellectual landscape of the Muslim world. In his riveting new book, What is a Madrasa? Ibrahim Musa professor of history and Islamic studies at the University of Notre Dame, challenges such sensationalist, stereotypical narratives by providing instead a nuanced and richly textured account of the place and importance of madrasas in Islam, both historically and in the contemporary moment. Rather than approaching madrasas from a policy studies viewpoint, as institutions requiring reform and modernization, this book instead examines madrasas on their own terms, with a view of highlighting their internal complexities and tensions. Focused primarily on the Madrasas of South Asia, what makes this book particularly remarkable is the way it brings together the intellectual histories and traditions that define Madrasa education and the everyday practices in Madrasa life today. The reader of this book travels through an arcade of the seminal texts, scholars and sites that have shaped the Madrasa as an institution and its curricula over the last several centuries. But moreover, This book also provides readers with intimate portraits of daily life at madrasas through the eyes of students who study there, thus bringing into view the rhythms of everyday practices that punctuate the lives of madrasa students and the hopes, anxieties, and aspirations that irrigate their religious and social imaginaries. In our conversation, in addition to discussing these themes, we also talked about Professor Musa's own journey as a teenager in the madrasas of South Asia to the corridors of the American Academy. Written in an exceptionally lucid fashion, this book is essential reading for anyone interested in understanding the complexities of Muslim traditions of knowledge and education. It will also be particularly well suited for undergraduate and graduate seminars on Muslim intellectual thought, education and or Islam in South Asia. Here now is my conversation with Professor Ibrahim Musa. Hello, Dr. Musa, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Shirali. Ali, how are you? Very good. Uh, Thank you so much, Dr. Musa, for your time and a wonderful book, uh, wonderfully written. uh, And it does multiple things. It provides us with an excellent uh, historical narrative of madrasas in South Asia and elsewhere. It gives us an excellent ethnography of what happens in uh, classrooms and madrasa uh, today uh, in India and in Pakistan. And it also talks about the geopolitics of madrasa. So it does multiple things and uh, wonderfully written and brimming with insight. So thank you so much for this wonderful book and for your time today. Well, you're very generous, and thank you for having me on your program. So, the uh, we have a tradition of new books in Islamic studies that our first question is always biographical. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, my two-part question to you would be, uh, first of all, how did you uh, become a scholar of Islam, which in, uh, in this case is actually quite relevant uh, to this book also, and we'll talk more about that as the interview proceeds. And secondly, uh, how did you come to write this particular book? Yeah, I... I think that,
0: you know, when I start becoming aware of who I am and what I am, I mean, I think, you know, born and raised in South Africa, um, the question of your existential presence uh, in South Africa as a person of a, of, of a brown skin in a uh, white-dominated South Africa with a large, vast majority of people of African heritage in apartheid South Africa where things where people were discriminating against people of color, Um, people like myself, and and I think I'm not the only one, always had to ask this question, who are you and what are you? And for many people, uh, or at least for a few people that I know, the question of religion became an identity marker. And in my case, it was a a certain set of doubts about what is Islam uh, in an encounter um, with a uh, colleague of mine at school who was a Jehovah's Witness, and he made uh, a series of criticism of Islam, and that got me thinking. And so I started, you know, uh, thinking, you know, the stuff that I know as a student who goes to equivalent of Sunday school. I was reading books on Islam, but some of those questions, those nagging questions about how do I understand this tradition, um, really were not forthcoming. And I realized that I needed many more tools than just reading books in order to understand that. And then I got involved with the Tablighi Jama'at, which is a, a Islamic um, evangelical uh, movement. Um, they gave me spiritual solace, but the intellectual questions still remain. And that's how I then persuaded my parents that they should give me permission to go study Islam uh, in, in, in India. And um, And this book is actually a, a way in which I want to explain that journey. But, you know, in a post nine eleven world, it also became necessary as a defense of the madrasa. So in another title for this book would have been in defense of the madrasa. Uh, and so it is basically trying to hopefully share with a larger public, um, a public, both people within Muslim communities, but also for other faith communities and other interested parties as to what the work madrasas do and why the criticism of madrasas as places of terrorism and radicalism is a a very flawed analysis and is not the entire story.
1: So could you tell us a bit more about your uh, own journey in the madrasas in India as a young boy and how do you think your journey and experience is reflective of some of the strengths, potentialities, and also some of the shortcomings of a mother's education. Mm. Well, you know, m- my journey was one of a restless person,
0: so I was very restless. Um, I wanted things to get done. I everywhere I went uh, to a madrasa, I always saw uh, this shortcoming or that shortcoming. And what do I mean by shortcoming? So, first of all, I went there very unequipped in terms of languages i i could read the quran but i had no arabic language i couldn't speak any indian language except a very very broken uh, version of gujarati and so it's a a period of 6 years in which i craft my own curriculum unintentionally unintentionally rather um, so i started with the madrasa in baroch uh, in, in in gujarat where I uh, learned basic Arabic and Urdu and I quickly realized you know Gujarat is not the is not the kind of the heart of where uh, Islam is studied. I always heard of, of Dioban. Dioban is the kind of the the equivalent of the Harvard or the main kind of intellectual place in in South in South Asia where Islam is studied. So after one year in Gujarat I head out for for, for Dioban. Now I'm in the kind of playing in the big league so to speak. But the big league uh, school is not the place where you get the kind of best uh, best attention, right? It's like, you know, going to, when you go to a liberal arts school, there's a lot of attention on the part of faculty towards a student. Now you're in a very big place. Now you have to find your own way through that. Luckily, I had that zeal. I had that kind of discipline. And I, I made my way uh, through uh, the curricular pro- process. The great advantage of going through uh, a, 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 a going to a place like dioban such a large place, and in being on this voyage of mine, uh, a lot of adventure uh, in it too, is that uh, you get to encounter a number of players and people that you would not normally encounter if you followed the set ways. So I, I, I quickly got exposure to some of the you know major scholars in dioban Mufti Mahmoud Gangawahi, Ali Muhammad Tayyab, um, you know, Molnar um, Madani, uh, not Hussein not Ahmed Madani, but his son, um, and Asad Madani, and that whole family. So, quickly I got exposure to a variety of players. Um, people on the Shura of Dioban, who are teaching at Aligarh, like Akbar Abadi, um, very, very important players in, in the Madrasa tradition. So that's where you learn a lot of things, and you be quickly grow out of this kind of uh, starry-eyed uh view that one had had the beginning of an idealistic place, but you see the place with all its complexities and its flaws. And so in many ways, um, my journey is an unusual journey because after two and a half, almost three years at Dioban, I realized that, you know, okay, Dioban has his limitations. It's going to drive me into a very kind of limited um, horizon of thinking. It, it involves a trip back to South Africa where I reevaluated uh, myself and what I'm learning, and how is that learning going to be relevant uh, to the society I would want to serve. Um, Now, what was very clear that when I got back from South Africa, or even when I left South Africa for the first time to come study in India, um, I knew that I want to serve, but what I wanted to serve, I was not very clear. And I think as I continued my journey in the Madrasas, I realized that it's the journey of learning and the journey of knowledge that i want to serve i did not see myself as a functionary in a mosque or you know working at an islamic center or leading communities but i quickly realized that that was where my energy was and one of the first things i wanted to do is that i want to learn how to write and i want to write in english and and so that in itself spurred me uh, to read widely to read broadly and to explore other Modalities of learning, such as reading and political science and English literature, side by side with my madrasa curriculum.
1: So, one of the major strengths of this book is that it really gives the reader a very intimate picture of uh, the daily educational and social life of students at madrasas. And the first uh, chapter of your book, in fact, is titled Wake, Wash, Pray. Uh, I was wondering, we know that you know, not. Every madrasa is alike, of course. There is a lot of uh, diversity and heterogeneity, as you show in your book. But could you walk us through a routine day at a South Asian madrasa? And what's the importance of disciplining the body uh, to the religious and social imaginaries of the people and the students who uh, populate uh, madrasas? You
0: know, I, I can explain it through my own kind of discipline that was there. So one of the first things you learn in a madrasa is that knowledge without practice is in many ways uh, fruitless or half achieved. In other words, all knowledge must have a relevance to one's life and to one's being and it must have a purpose. And and so in order to be the recipient of knowledge, you must also have the spiritual light in your heart and in your mind that will make that knowledge uh, deliver on its fruits. And so, in a life of practice, a life of prayer, a life of a life of you know observance of the major rituals uh, is quite vital. It's it's actually unthinkable. It's unthinkable that you will not have a life of practice. So a day starts in the following way. You start off in the morning, um, you know, at least half an hour before um, morning prayers, Fajr prayers. Um, you'll be woken up. By the uh, by, the warden. Uh, you get ready. You do your ablutions, and you go to the mosque. If you go a bit earlier, you can recite some Quran. You can engage in meditation. You can do some dhikr, Then you will be a long morning prayer. Um, Fajr prayer is always longer than the other ones because it's the stillness and the beginning of the day. It's a very depending on the season. If it's winter, you know places are kind of fairly. Frigid. If it's summer, it's actually very enjoyable and beautiful that time of the morning. And in in, in South Asia, you know, mosques also have um, outer courtyards. So in summer, you pray pray in the courtyards and it's in the open and it's beautiful. And it's a very tranquil environment. So your day starts in a beautiful way, and you begin to feel the first impulses of the daybreak and your contact with nature and your contact with the divine and your body being cleansed. It's just a it's just a magical feeling in itself. Um, and then you you would read again Quran after Fajr you would memorize passages that or oh, sections of the Quran if you're a Hafiz of the Quran you would at least read one one juz, uh, one part of 30 parts of the Quran in order to keep fresh um, if you're not a Hafiz of the Quran you would try and read as much um, of the Quran then you have breakfast then it'll be maybe an hour 45 minutes before the first class begins and that that continues until noon. Uh, you could have about two two to three classes before noon. Noon, it's a quick lunch, and then you go and sleep. In, especially in summer, you go and sleep in order to get a siesta. And then there is Dhuhr prayers. The Dhuhr prayers are slightly delayed. And after Dhuhr prayers, um, there would be maybe a cup of tea and into class. That class then continues till Asr time, and that's when the official uh, day ends. So, um, then you answer prayers and then it's time for recreation. You either play a game, go for long walks. you go to a majlis that is a a, a circle of any renowned teacher where they will have guests and guests will ask, be asking questions. you sit uh, as part of that gathering and you get a lot of kind of um you know snippets of wisdom and insight. And uh, generally, people don't encourage you to read any book or do any study between Asr and Maghrib. It's seen as a time, complete kind of relaxation. And then Maghrib prayers, um, depending on the season, again, you will have your dinner before Maghrib, and the Maghrib prayers. And after Maghrib, you start doing mutara, that is preparation for uh, tomorrow's lesson, uh, rehearsal of any lesson today that you might have had, groups of students would sit. One 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 student would take the lead. Uh, some students are so good they would I would actually be able to repeat the entire lesson uh, that was taught by the by the teacher uh, on the same day. Um, do some you know analysis of the text and then preparation for tomorrow's tomorrow's lesson. And mm-hmm. those are those are really energizing study groups. Um, because each one tries to show the skill, demonstrate the skill. That's also how the next generation of of teachers are are, are formed. And then you will have aisha prayers, and then after Isha prayers, there will be a, a further continuation of study groups or individual study. Uh, lots of reading, also you know, lots of South Asia is chai world, not coffee. Lots of lots of chai, and and you know, and and just friendship and. Um, building friendships, talking to other people, maybe engaging in, in in more study or writing, and that's how you 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 would go try and sleep uh, at a kind of reasonable time in order to wake up
1: fresh in the morning. Now, among the major themes of uh, this book and something that you spend a lot of time uh, discussing throughout the book uh, is the place and importance of knowledge. You just mentioned the relationship between knowledge and practice, but you actually spend a lot of time uh, discussing the importance of knowledge itself uh, in what you call. Uh, the cosmology of Ulama knowledge traditions. So could you speak a little about the conceptual and religious significance of knowledge as an intellectual and indeed as an embodied category uh, in Ulama traditions and in everyday madrasa life?
0: Hmm. Yeah, you know, the, it's in in the Ulama tradition, um, elm or knowledge um, is actually the the way in which it is through knowledge that we are embodied and it's through knowledge that we, that, we, uh, that we create a relationality with the divine. So elm, that is knowledge, amal, that is practice, both together blend to form a relationship to the divine. So knowledge is not only about practice, but the practice is directed at the divine. So in some ways, um, the embodiment of ritual is actually to try to um, internalize the divine into yourself through practices, through, through so in, in some ways, knowledge is an act of obedience. And that is such an important component of the Madrasa tradition, that elm is the sacrality of elm. The sacrality of knowledge is that it's so closely related to obedience that uh, knowledge is purity is part of godliness. Um, then you know knowledge, is in some ways, the fulcrum of godliness, because all other kinds of knowledge that are that preceded the instrumental knowledge that is your ability to read, your ability to write, your ability to get multiple disciplines under, under control, all leading to the discovery of the creator of the world. That is the centerpiece of, of knowledge. And therefore, in some ways, for many, that very idea of knowledge gets precisely distorted by this concentration of knowledge on the divine as if nothing else matters. Um, but thought of in a much more holistic way all the other knowledge traditions of how to understand the world, how to get understand Arabic grammar, how to understand poetry, how to understand writing, how to learn these skills, how to how to get a sense of geography, of science. All this parts of, forms part of a cumulative whole, but that cumulative whole is always identified by it's apogee, that is the knowledge of the divine, as if that light, you know, excludes all the other light, other kinds of dimensions of the knowledge project. And therefore, there's, a, there's often a kind of an intentional or unintentional skewing of what knowledge is uh, in the Madrasa tradition. So that sometimes one gets the impression that only knowledge of faith is a knowledge that is value. And that's how Madrasa Uh, representatives, sometimes misrepresent themselves and the tradition. But in reality, this is the kind of superlative experience of of knowledge.
1: Okay, let's uh, move to the context of uh, South Asia that forms the focus uh, of this book. Uh, Can you give us a brief narrative uh, of the key moments and events and figures that mark the intellectual uh, history of madrasas in South Asia I know this is a broad question but could you sort of encapsulate give us, give us a snapshot of the key uh, moments, events and figures uh, that populate uh, this history Well it seems that you know, it seems that the earliest um,
0: encounters of what would see as the kind of the proto madrasa tradition you know, begins at a at, at very early period with the arrival of Islam um, um, in South Asia either through Sindh or through Gujarat and I think study circles or individuals um you know definitely you know organize themselves in a in a way of transmitting learning um over over a particular period. but I think w- one of the ways to best illustrate um what happens is to take it from the say the eighteenth century uh, or or maybe um, the seventeenth century where I think the uh, major centers and historically the major centers in, of learning in South Asia were, you know, Gujarat, the Dakan, um, um North India, uh, m- the areas of Multan. And I think of North India, I think of Delhi, I'm thinking of, I thinking of Agra, I'm thinking of Lahore, um, you know, um, those areas right into Multan. Those were the, and you know, over the Punjab um, into the frontier areas. That, those were the kind of ma- major nodes um, where the madrasa tradition was somewhat not as organized as we find it today, but students would go in search of a specialist. So people would go to Delhi to study with the Hadith specialists, go to Johnpur to study with the Arabic uh, grammar specialists, travel to, you know, um, Kherabad to go study logic or go to Multan to study Tafsir, uh, that is Quran exegesis. So students would be itinerant to follow uh, the expertise of of, of teachers and, and and experts. By the time in the 18th century, one can think of Shawal uh, the 18th century sage and major influential figure in South Asia, uh, you know, his father had a madrasa, uh, madrasa rahimia, and it seemed that they began to put under one roof multiple multiple scholars where, you know, these scholars could teach more than one discipline to a group of students. And, and of course, the madrasas that we have today and the form and the shape, in my view, it takes its, uh, its stamp and its imprint from the Farangi Mahal School that also, you know, was shaped in the, in the 18th century in, in, the, in the city of Lucknow. And it seemed that the Farangi Mahal School became the model of the, of the Madrasa. But that was almost, a, that was a kind of a family franchise in the 18th century. Uh, one family and its scholars, um, offering services. And as she, as I mentioned in the book, Shibli Nomani, the great, uh, you know, reformist, traditionalist, said, referred to Farangi Mahal as, you know, this is the Cambridge of India. Uh, and that is a very quaint identification of, of, of Farangi Mahal because it is as quaint and small and dainty as Cambridge is compared to, say, American universities. But we're, we're very, very kind of detailed, uh, uh, you know, Islamic humanities are studied in, in those places, Arabic grammar, philosophy, logic, um, kind of some, in the Ferengi curriculum you had some, you know, one book on, on tafsir, maybe one book on Islamic law. A very little on hadith, but mostly the kind of humanistic hum- humanities Islamic humanities were taught uh, taught there. and the big shift then takes place with the founding of of Dioban in the last uh, quarter of uh, the nineteenth century, where the Dioban school adopts a certain kind of uh, British administra- administrative um, you know uh, grid and format in order to organize the gradations of study according to certain texts and years and also a certification at the end and with a proper administration uh, and and salaries for for teachers and stipends for students in a particular way and it seems that the improvisation on the farangi mahal um, uh, curriculum and and but also the improvisation of the bureaucracy and administration of madrasas lays the uh, foundation stone uh, of the madrasa. So it's both uh, these moments from the 18th century uh, to the 19th century, uh, the events as post uh, the Indian rebellion and the figures that we are talking about, you know, Farangi Mahal, um, the kind of major actors there is Mullah Nizamuddin and then his very, very, um, um, you know, dedicated uh, followers, his son, his nephews and others who, uh, you know, carry the torch of learning from the Franke Maha School, and then you have in Dioban, of course, um, people like Qasim Nanoti, Rashid, Rashid Ahmed Gangoi, and Haji Haji um, uh, Haji M- Abid Abid Hussain, uh, who is who are the kind of the troika of, of the founders. But you know, the students, the very next generation, are people like Mahmoud Hassan, known as Sheikh Hind. Uh, who is both a scholar, activist, political activist. And that, I think, creates a a variety of students in the second, third generation of Dioban um, that generates its own kind of dynamics.
1: So uh, let's now move to the uh, curriculum or the kinds of texts which are uh, studied and and learned in madrasas. And this might be an aspect which might be most unfamiliar to people from outside uh, madrasa traditions. Uh, could you discuss and describe a bit the kinds of texts which students in South Asian madrasas, for example, read and master, and how did the curriculum evolve and come to be what it is today? And also, if you could discuss a bit how these texts are taught and, and learned on a daily basis in madrasas. Yeah.
0: You know, so, so these texts are uh, a text that were written, you know, as far back as the 11th, 12th century um, uh, in the Gregory calendar to uh, the 18th century um, texts in Arabic, uh, some were written in Persian. And, you know, these, these texts are, are, are taught line by line. So you read a text line by line, then there's commentary line by line. Now, obviously, the idea is to teach the student how to negotiate the text. So it's, it is the philological approach that is about, it's about words, it's about meanings, it's about language, and about ideas and the worlds that language creates. So if there's anywhere that you can say where the philological tradition uh, of Islam still exists and where it flourishes, it's still in the South Asian madrasa uh, systems. I mean, in, in the variety of the madrasa systems. So you would you would take a text, um, like say, uh, uh, Shurun Bulali's text on, called Nurul Idah, um, uh, the light of Light, light the light that clarifies, uh, which is a text on your primer on Islamic law Hanafi law, and so you would start with the with the with the opening of the text the the hamd and thana, uh the praise of to God and 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 the and the um, remembrance and, and and the indebtedness that the scholar has uh, for those who had all his benefactors. And there will be a, a very careful grammatical analysis of why he used that word and not that word. What does this word imply? Uh, what kind of theological signals does the author try to send by using this word uh, and not another word? And then you slowly break into the substance of what the author is talking about. Uh, teachers who will be teaching that book obviously know the kind of next level of detail of one particular line. So it will say, for instance, you know, um, water is uh, found in these different types. And then it would, in, a, in in your Prima text, it will just basically mention the waters, no particular details of it, just mention them. The teacher would then analyze and to the extent that the teacher thinks is relevant to give you uh, the next level of detail. They will give it otherwise the goal is that you must be able to navigate the reading, the grammar and understanding of this text. So in the beginning, the text is read very slowly and so you might only read two lines uh, per day. Uh, it depends also on the proficiency of the student's uh, linguistic ability. And then slowly the pace would increase and then you would begin to get control of a larger body of, of information on a particular topic. And that's how every book starts. Most of the kind of law books, Islamic law books, the fiqh books, start with a discussion on on ceremonial purity. Um, a, a tafsir book would start on commentary of an exegesis of the Quran. So you start with the, the opening chapter, Surah Fatiha, and again, the kind of detailed analysis. Um, so this is how these texts are taught. And obviously, the every year of study, um, you have a gradation of a text of greater complexity in each subject le- in subject level. So after uh, Nour Irāh comes the study of Quduri. After Quduri comes the study of Kanz al-Daqāiq. After Kanz al-Daqāiq you will study Sharḥ After Sharḥ al-Wiqāya you will study al-Hidaya. And Hidayah in the Hanafi tradition is the kind of the uh, the fulcrum of, of 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 the of the tradition. And that's what you will have in every discipline. Uh, and that's how the texts are taught in a very kind of didactic fashion.
1: One of the things that I uh, began thinking about as I was reading your book is, uh, you know, the relationship between the things that we teach in classrooms and the social lives or the campus life of students, oftentimes one wonders, how are these students internalizing things that we're teaching them? And is this informing, for example, conversations and other aspects of their extracurricular lives on campuses? And you provide some very interesting examples of this relationship between the texts that the Madrasa students read and their everyday lives on Madrasa campuses, whereas sometimes you provide examples of moments when particular texts seem very distant to the social imaginaries of students, uh, these texts from many centuries ago that they, that they read, and other times when they seemed much more captivated on a much more personal basis, uh, what they were reading and what they were discussing in classes. So could you share some of these examples in talking about the larger relationship between the texts that are read and the everyday lives of Madrasa, Madrasa students Uh, on Mother's campuses,
0: You know, thinking back about my own experience and I realized that these texts really require a certain amount of preparation, um, a certain maturity, a certain level of understanding what is the world before these texts can really have an impact. As I say in the book that, you know, I really began to value this tradition, even you know immensely after graduation, once I began to realize that they offer something that they that they offer something of tradition, in other words, once I became a humanist, now you are absolutely right to have observed that sometimes a text is very distant from your own life experience, but sometimes you know um, there will be a moment in which you know you one can use a text or and and talk about you know a, a a particular act of ritual so for instance um the author of kan says that you know uh, that you know marriage is a encouraged practice of the prophet it's a sunnah but when you have a a, a surfeit of of passion and sexual energy uh then it becomes obligatory Okay, and then we are all young boys and young men and and you know you have uh, um, all kinds of you know experiences um, and in Islamic law that if you have a nocturnal emission um, then you have to take a ritual bath and then you know uh, in the mornings young men run to the bathroom with a bucket in a hand and trying to look for warm water, take a bath and then some people will be saying you know Wa in the you know and you know at this, Uh, That when these energies push too hard, then maybe marriage is a good example and be good, you know, titter and and, and mutual kind of jesting. Um, And that's where, but, you know, many of the practices of, you know, how do you pray? Um, Do you raise your hands? Uh, between the various prostrations, or don't you? Or is, is the hadith more stronger on this matter of raising your hands or not raising your hands? Is the Hanafi school right? Do the Shafis not have a better position on this? That will be a constant conversation. Um, you know, how do you, uh, you know, the recitation of certain verses and passages? Um, is it correct? Is it the correct form of reading, uh, um, in terms of tajweed? Um, in interpretation of hadith materials and these are ongoing conversations that ha, do have an impact on your interpretation so for instance if you came across a reference uh, you will find the author of a, a, a text that is not taught but is a reference text say Kas, uh, kasani uh, who is the author of Badai or Sanai a major reference work mm, he somewhere there mentions that he doesn't really or some scholar doesn't really approve of child marriage. OK. Um, and these issues become quickly relevant to the life around you. Um, the question when I was in India, it was a state of emergency. The first couple of years, Mrs. Gandhi, uh, political repression. Um, and then there was this whole question of, you know, um, forced sterilization. What is the moral status of forced sterilization? Can a a Muslim allow him or herself to be sterilized voluntarily or by state? What is the relationship to the body? Uh, You know, all these ethical dilemmas come up. I mean, how do you pray uh, when you're traveling on the train? Um, All these day-to-day practices of ritual that are, you know, resplendent in in Muslim life, um, those issues come up on a day-to-day basis. And so, you are reading, you're trying to understand, you're trying to, you know, what's the place of television? Can you use media? Everything is related to life in, in, in one or the other way. And these debates continue
1: within, within, within Madrasa um, communities. Let us talk a bit about uh, contemporary Madrasas and education uh, that you also discuss quite extensively in your book. And you mentioned that as part of your research, you audited a number of classes in both male and female Madrasas across India and Pakistan. Uh, can you take, talk a little about some of your observations uh, from these classes? Uh, what most captured your attention in terms of pedagogy, learning, and the diversity of educational approaches that you found in these madrasas? So you know, I mean, uh, I I could access the male
0: madrasas uh, very directly, but the female madrasas, I a former student of mine, um, she went into a, a female madrasa, and I know of another scholar, female scholar, who had been there. So I used some of their insights. In, in describing uh, what happens in female madrasas. So, you know, um, I, one, of the, one of the observations I had was that the methodology and the way students are taught today compared to my education 30 years ago, in many ways, very similar. I mean, I didn't see, you know, there might be madrasas over there, but I didn't see the use of, you know, overhead projector. I didn't see the use of, you know, multimedia. Um I mean what I did see is that there are now computer banks and 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 places where students can do things but the classroom is kind of you know very similar uh and the organization is similar what I did observe was that the the pedagogical approaches that different teachers used in 30 years ago you find that variety today too so um some, some professors would use this opportunity um, to, in the classroom to basically give a lecture and really you know, um, dazzle the students by making connections, by talking about relevant issues in today's world, connecting it to politics. And, and other teachers will be very much focused on the text. So some, for, for some professors, uh, the text becomes a pretext for a larger conversation, and for others, the text is basically an opportunity to, to drill down into the tradition, to open up, you know, um, you know, new um, dimensions of the text, to uh, find, you know, different ways of connecting the dots to previous lessons, to previous thematics in the text, um, and so there's this, you know, um, diversity. Some teachers are have a combination of 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 both doing this kind of fine grained work, but also trying to give you the big picture. Um, others just give you the big picture of, of of the text and say, you know, you can read the text by yourself, or your your Arabic is proficient enough. So I think that the um, in many ways the 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 pedagogical approaches uh, have remained similar. Um, in a few areas, they've taken out difficult texts. And replace them with easier ones, and some of the philosophic, uh, you know, philosophy texts have been uh, completely excised because they are way too difficult and uh, for students today, and really don't make any kind of connections. Um, so they might use one text in philosophy, and many of the madrasas. Obviously, the the um, the best is you know kept for last, and that is the study of hadith. So while you might have in your penultimate year some study of hadith in the final year of a madrasa curriculum, uh, in today's madrasas, uh, you will have students studying uh, the the six canonical Sunni books um, uh, of hadith. Um, at first, very slowly, but then towards the end, uh, a- the goal is to finish the book so that the student can get ijazah, can get permission and certification to to teach others and also to pass on the baton of, of 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 authorizing the student to teach this book, and that's how knowledge passes from from heart to heart, from person to person.
1: Uh, just a quick follow up question to that, Doctor Musa. In, in the book, you also uh, talk about your own suggestions uh, or your own uh, observations of how the mother's tradition uh, uh, and the curriculum could be modified, or Ways in which uh, the, success, the the way in which uh, the texts are uh, progress in the six years could be changed, and so on as a traditional scholar, you make certain observations of how to make the curriculum itself more dynamic and speak to other knowledge traditions. Could you share briefly some of those things that you mentioned in the book uh, in terms of your own suggestions, your own um, uh, yeah, your own suggestions to to uh, make the curriculum more dynamic yeah no i I, th- I think the the Nizami curriculum would possibly be best served as a kind of a graduate
0: curriculum uh, where the student is well-prepared in Arabic language, get the kind of, you know, foundations in various disciplines, have a good sense of philology and the humanities, broadly speaking, especially deep grounding in, say for instance, you know, language and modern language. And then you tackle those texts, those texts will then, you know, speak a different message, provide a very different message. Um, at least in terms of the intellectual intellectual output, right? So then one will have a better appreciation of what the Muslim medieval scholars were trying to achieve. Then the value of their work will increase, you know, millionfold, I believe, um, because then one will have a sense of that, and and also studied with history, with the historical sensibility of what was going on. So and, So the success of the Madrasa tradition now is that what it does, it inducts you into a tradition, but you are largely intellectually um, not that literate, not literate to the extent that you could have been. Because I think the the approach uh, assumes too much right now and the students are not prepared to optimize from the text. And the uh, and and the way of in which these texts are taught right now is that they induct you into a tradition, and the idea is that your relationship to the text and to the past is one in is one that that inducts you into piety, and a life of devotion, and that's what I call the Republic of Piety. But I think you need both; you require the Republic of Letters and learning together with the Republic of devotion and piety. And the two go together. And I think one is achieved at the expense of the other. So therefore, I'm saying that a good grounding in the humanities and some of the social sciences in a kind of undergraduate program with language, Arabic and Persian, then the Nizami curriculum, it will have a profound um, outcome in terms of appreciation of the tradition and the reading of the tradition and also the knowledge production of... of, of, uh, scholars and, and scholarship in, in South Asia. And therefore, I remain so hopeful that the real solution uh, to the knowledge crisis still lies with, with, with those uh, communities, um, but only on condition, on condition rather, that they um, are done in a, in a different uh, register and they're done with a different method and approach.
1: So let us move to the uh, final uh, part of the book, which is on the contemporary geopolitics surrounding madrasas and discourses on madrasas. So what do you find most problematic, Dr. Boussa, if you could pinpoint about uh, the contemporary popular and media discourses about madrasas and what kind of a corrective uh, do you see yourself offering in this book?
0: You know, I mean, uh, to, to, to put it bluntly, I mean, it's it's, it's a sheer ignorance of, of observers just because they see people... You know, looking different and, you know, um, wearing different and studying a universe that they can't relate to, they equate that, uh, those madrasas equate that to terrorism. Just because the Taliban or some of the people related to the Taliban have studied in madrasas um, doesn't mean that all the madrasas are Taliban esque. Um, most of the madrasas are not. There are, uh, you know, a dozen or so madrasas in Pakistan that openly identify with the Taliban. Uh, but those madrasas, you know, are sui generous. The majority of the madrasas, um, you know, don't engage in milit- militant activities. Yes, they are critical of American foreign policy. Uh, the Barelvi madrasas don't even identify with the Taliban. They consider the Taliban to be the scourge. Um, um, the Salafis, you know, pay very little attention um, to the to the kind of the politics of, of 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 that region. They might be more interested in the politics of. Uh, of say other parts of the world or they want you know they want to combat the Diobandi influence or whatever the case may be um, so there the, the are different projects what I'm saying is that the the, the demonization of the madrasas is one thing that is bred out of pure ignorance and based on sketchy reports of uh, people who you know claim to be scholars who interviewed uh, a number of people who associated with madrasas and therefore they are associated with the war in Kashmir and that they are freedom fighters, and then they turn into uh, into, in, into terrorists. And the the, the the truth of the matter is that the madrasas are doing something very different. And nowadays you find, you know, uh, television shows like Homeland and others uh, quickly identifying terrorists going to a madrasa. So in, in these in these uh, uh, HBO shows and so on, you will see madrasas now being seen as demonic. And I think that that is the, the corrective that I'm offering is a factual corrective. I'm taking them and telling them what exactly they study, how they study the text, what they do. Do they have political views? Yes. Do they have political views that are not America friendly? Yes. But that has never been a, a sin and that has never been an offense. And that has not been a, 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 a way, a, a reason to consider other people to, to be demonic. Rather, it should be a wake up call for America. To get his act together and show a much more friendlier face on the world stage, as to how it would like the world to view it, and then it must deliver that in terms of the actions it does on the world stage, rather than invading countries and you know uh, and assassinating people around the world, which has been you know part of the actions of of multiple administrations in in since nine eleven. And so I think one has to separate the political fallout
1: from what is actually taking place within madrassas. You end this book on a rather curious uh, note in a, a by writing a few letters to Western and US policymakers and to your own former madrasa teachers. Uh, could you share with us some of the highlights of what you wrote in these letters and to whom were these letters addressed?
0: Yeah so I, you know i I'm, I'm the one letter is kind of a generic letter addressed to uh, a, a U, a U, any US president and and to members of Congress and trying to tell them that you know You're making a big mistake in terms of policy uh, practices and policy directives by thinking of madrasas as demonic places, as dangerous places. You are basically, it's a self-defeating project. And that those are live communities, these communities preach to millions of people. And if you show hostility towards them, they are going to return the compliment in hostility. And and there's no reason for you to view them as hostile. You need to understand what role they play. And you also need to hear, I'm trying to tell governments, U.S. government, but governments around the world, that you need to hear what orthodox religious leaders are saying about how they see the world. If you only want to force your view of how the world is or supposed to be on others, that's not going to work. You need to see how the, the world is viewed through people living in different spaces, having different horizons, and having different visions of what life on earth is. If you're not going to get that, if you're not going to appreciate that, then you're going to miss a lot, and it's only going to result in greater harm in inter civilizational, intercultural uh, communication. For my teachers, I'm trying to share with them both my debt to them, that I wouldn't be the person I am today, um, without that very, very formative um, education that I got, I, I, I'm very proud of that imprint on on my on my soul, on my being, of being a student of this very um, you know impressive tradition, um, a tradition that has you know formed millions of people as part of a living tradition still today. And therefore I you know am showing one on one hand my debt on the other, I'm also trying to share that who I have become and what I would like to channel back and say, you know, don't view um, knowledge of the humanities and the social sciences, the kind of knowledge that I've also embraced and hopefully trying to create the synthesis of different knowledge streams that address, um, you know, our human dilemma in much more complex ways. Don't view that as, as anathema. Uh, don't view those knowledge traditions and knowledge of the other uh, in a hostile fashion. For them also, I'm telling them that that will be self-defeating. The way out would be to to um, to be uh, much more judicious, to be much more open, to be experimental, and to listen to the other. And and so I, I take two teachers. One is uh, Maulana Abdul Khalid Madrasi was a was a young uh, professor at the time when i studied he was clearly uh, you know someone who inspired me a great deal a master of the arabic language uh, he was always critical you know about madrasa practices that has always resonated with me and you know and that way also you know motivated me to think outside the box and another is a uh, and and amol khalid madrasi today is one of the uh, deputy vice chancellors uh at uh, Dioban, uh you know, uh, you know, uh, Madrasa, and he's doing important, important things uh, for the school. I'm trying to remind him that once upon a time, he was a great advocate of curriculum reform. And I'm asking him, you know, and gently nudging him to say, you know, maybe that is something that you want to, you want to address again. And the other one is, um, you know, Mulan Sayyid Salman Husseini Nadvi, uh, head of Sharia studies that that's where I finally graduated cuz I I didn't complete my studies at Yoban. I went to another year, another college which is mm-hmm. Nadwatul Ulama in a bigger city with a different kind of orientation but today almost identical to Joban in many ways um, Salman uh, Nadvi is a a a outspoken um, you know advocate of Islam sometimes people view him as you know upping the temperature a bit with his rhetoric Um, he's also, you know, been thinking about curriculum reform and been saying that knowledge should be seen in a much more capacious way and not in this narrow way that only knowledge only leads to piety, um, but that knowledge that leads to the discovery of God and relationship with God also requires a much more broader base. And that broader base would, would actually strengthen our relationship to the divine. But he, on the other hand, he's made also some kind of, Noises that almost sounded that he's one on the way, you know, advising ISIS to not be so violent and killing fellow Muslims, and a kind of a subtle admiration also going on there. So I'm telling him also that I'm worried about what I'm seeing you doing. That sends very mi- mixed signals, and you know, he's been extremely um, burdened by the failure of the Arab Spring, and he sees things in such absolute terms that, you know, the darkness that has befallen the Muslim world, and he blames a lot of other actors for that, uh, including the West. And so he's very critical about that. And so, but in many ways, he's also representative of a larger audience out there. And he has a, he has a lot of clout. So in some ways, I'm trying to start a conversation with that and say, you know, don't think about the immediate present, but also one way that as a traditionalist, one thinks about the future beyond the present and the same way that you look to the past the distant past as ways of nourishing the self look at the distant future and the role that you might want to play so don't go for instantaneous gratification and don't go for quick fixes and in some ways some streams in the madrasa in the madrasa world has been infected by the modernist impulse to have quick fixes to go for instant gratification and and I'm and I'm saying that you know, I'm have, trying to have a conversation. and Say, think beyond the immediate, and think about the long-term objectives, and try to preserve rather than confront.
1: So, as we're coming to the end of our uh, time today, uh, I was wondering if you could share with us uh, what kinds of projects are you working on these days, and what could we expect to read from you and learn from you in the coming uh, months and years. Well, I mean, I, you know, it, it might be a little bit premature, but, you know,
0: I, I've been for long, you know, working on on uh, some essays, how to think about um, Islamic law and ethics um, in the world in which we are living, what kind of questions we need to you know, pay attention to. So, I mean, uh, there's, there's a big book and a small book. Um, I think there's a uh, one book that I'm writing is meant to start a conversation with a broad audience. And another um, a book is one where I'm becoming a bit more technical and trying to work through uh, questions of reason, and notions of the body, notions of time, space, uh, political systems, and, uh, and the way in which Islamic law uh, plays a role there. And, you know, is it law? Is it ethical? And, you know, this, there's been a, quite a bit of a conversation about that while Halak's book um, – you know while Hala wrote many books on Islamic law but now he's talking about law as ethics and and self formation um, and that's something that I've also seen in my work that that might be a much more um you know a fruitful approach and then I want to I want to go back to Ghazali I want to um I'm just reading you know parts of Ghazali again and there's so much that I missed the first time and I guess I will miss more if I read it the second and third time, but I want to talk about Ghazali law uh, language and, and, and the ethical or, uh, and the legal. And so, you know, back to the language issue. So I'm really uh, energized by the return to, uh, to the humanities and the philological and it's in part it has got to do possibly with my very brief time at Notre Dame where there's a lot of, you know, energy and excitement about the, about about the humanities and the humanistic tradition and of, and, of, and of philology, and so I think um I'm, I'm this this place um, at, at Notre Dame is very um, engaged with the real world out there as a Catholic institution, but also the real world through a knowledge tradition. And I think I I'm I'm benefiting from this environment here, and so having very productive conversations about questions of religion and and practice and and society and the world and you know how does one how does scholarship play a role in in directing events in the world or at least we think we do so um, a couple of a couple of projects in, in, in a nutshell it's ethics and back to Ghazali and language
1: What is a Madrasa published by Professor Ibrahim Musa uh, uh, written by Professor Ibrahim Musa and published by the University of North Carolina Press Uh, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Thank you so much, Dr. Musa, for your time and for this wonderful book and uh, this excellent uh, conversation. I'm sure our listeners uh, would uh, really have benefited uh, from your insights. Uh, And thank you so much for uh, this book and for this conversation. Well, uh, Shirley,
0: first of all, thank you for your time and for, um, you know, uh, taking the trouble to read the book and also to conduct this interview. Um, I hope there's something of of benefit to your readers and, and I hope to engage them in a conversation, I I said uh, that, you know, I will dedicate some of my uh, website at least, to a conversation with people are interested in continuing a dialogue with this book. So I invite your listeners to do that. And I want to, again, show my deep appreciation and thanks to you for for uh, engaging me in, in such a productive manner. Thank, Thank you. you.
1: So this was my conversation with Professor Ibrahim Musa on his important new book, What is a Madrasa." published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2015. Please also join us next time for another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, stay well and take care.